0: Welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. On today's programme, we'll be asking what exactly is an oligarch and we'll be examining how their political influence has been leveraged in the Ukrainian conflict. What's it like behind the lens when you're capturing the images of life in war? We'll talk to the award winning journalist John McHugh about his work reporting from the front lines. And as our own government ministers are on a global promotion mission for Ireland, what's on the minds of the movers and shakers they'll be meeting? We'll hear from PwC about a global survey of over 4,000 business leaders. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstockNT. First up today, it's a word that we've all become very familiar with, but what exactly is an oligarch? What does the term mean and why are they important in this time of war? To shed some light on the shadowy subject, we're joined now by Professor Geoffrey A. Winters, who's Director of the Equality, Development and Globalisation Studies Programme at Northwestern University, specialising in the study of oligarchy. Geoffrey, you're very welcome and thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for the invitation.
0: Geoffrey, can we... kick off today with a very simple question. Can you define what is an oligarch?
1: An oligarch, uh, a term which is actually very ancient, going back thousands of years to uh, to Athens and Rome. Um, an oligarch is a person who is empowered by a tremendous concentration of wealth. So there are many things that can make people powerful, much more powerful than their fellow citizens. Um, it might be that they hold a powerful office. Um, they might be part of a very powerful network of people. They might be uh, someone who is armed and has what we might call coercive power. And one of the power resources that really uh, makes citizens or members of a community very different in the in the power they are able to wield is wealth. And so throughout history. Oligarchs have been defined as people who are super powerful because they are super wealthy.
0: So they may be content to remain on the margins of politics as long as their material financial interests are secure. Is that right?
1: Because especially with the rise of democracy, oligarchs have have tried for the most part to be invisible partly because if their tremendous power is constantly in the faces of uh, other members of uh, society, it poses risks to them. So if oligarchs can achieve their goal, uh, which is primarily wealth defense, that is making sure the rest of society, uh, through government or however it's done, does not redistribute their wealth, if they can achieve that without being terribly visible, that works to their uh, advantage. Um, one of the changes we've seen actually in uh, the last sort of 30 years is that oligarchs around the world have become far more bold, far more visible, and thus uh, a great deal of controversy. Uh, it's uh, Mandy, we would not be having this conversation about oligarchs 30 years ago, but we we're having them today because... They are exerting their influence and power uh, in a way that is very much in the faces of people. And it's, uh, it's a, a risky thing for them to do, actually, politically.
0: And would you say it's a soft power initiative that's driven by wealth?
1: Interesting question, because throughout history, coercion, uh, the use of violence has always been an important part of defending wealth. But what has happened over history is that the earliest oligarchs had to, were not only wealthy, but they had to actually have a coercive armed capacity. So oligarchs would build castles and they would have knights and, or they might themselves be knights. And so they would have militias and so on. As we enter the modern era, in what uh, Max Weber famously described as the modern state being a monopoly on the means of coercion. What he meant is that only the state is armed and civil society, everybody in society, is supposed to be disarmed. So oligarchs themselves in this modern era are, in most at least uh, democratic countries, are unarmed. But the deal that's been struck historically is that the state will use its violent capacity to defend property. So no one can take, as as they might have tried uh, in centuries past, um, uh, no one can take because the state is the defender of, of property.
0: So let's turn to to Russia for a moment um, and examine what's going on there. This term comes from political science, referring to a small group of people who control power. But looking at the Russian situation at the moment, it, it very much to me looks more like an autocracy. Do the oligarchs in Russia wield any real power still?
1: Let me step back from that question and clarify just a couple of things. Mm-hmm. One is that oligarchs are these people defined by wealth power. Oligarchy, and this is very important, oligarchy is not a form of government. Oligarchy is a political process. What I mean by that is, oligarchy is the politics of defending wealth. And so oligarchy is blended into many different kinds of systems. Oligarchy is blended into democracy. Oligarchy is also blended into authoritarian autocratic regimes. And so um, why is this important? Because um, oligarchy is not zero sum, for example, with democracy. So the antidote to having oligarchy in your political system is not increasing democracy. Um, It's not as if oligarchy rises because democracy decreases and vice versa. Oligarchy, to be clear, is the consequence of incredibly concentrated wealth which gives people incredible levels of power and they can use that power within a democracy or they can use it in any other kind of system so i i just want to clarify that yeah because- can,
0: can, can can i ask you a question actually i'm sorry for sure. interrupting you here but just picking up on that point incredibly wealthy people who are controlling power you could easily look at the american system and say and um, actually, there's a there's there's a, an incredible there's a small amount of incredibly wealthy people who are driving the power base in America.
1: Absolutely. And, and one of the interesting things in this moment where everyone is talking about Russian oligarchs, Russian oligarchs, um, as if oligarchs only exist in places like Russia. I had a, a few years ago, I teach a course at Northwestern University called Oligarchs and Elites. And a number of years ago, a graduate student announced on the first day of class Russia has oligarchs, the United States has rich people. And it was a very interesting debate uh, that went on in the the course of that seminar. Um, But it's interesting that Americans and people in the West often don't view uh, their country as having oligarchs because of two reasons. One, they think that somehow oligarchs are people who got rich through some kind of crime or corruption. Uh, There's something Illegal about them. Um, and that's why they'll call people in Russia uh, oligarchs. Um, but uh, in fact, that is uh, an interpretation of oligarchs which has nothing to do with the history of the term, which goes, which goes back, as I said, thousands of years. The United States is absolutely spilling over with oligarchs. And the United States is a combination of democracy and oligarchy. We have a very small number of people whose concentrated wealth allows them to influence and many would say, distort American politics and democracy. They fund candidates um, and, and, and they do all kinds of things with their money. Most of which, by the way, is completely unseen. So one of the things that oligarchs do is they make sure that things don't happen. And so that's very hard to perceive, isn't it? So for example, a change in tax policy uh, that might increase taxes on them, they use what I call the wealth defense industry, which is a multi-billion dollar uh, uh, industry of lawyers, accountants, wealth management people, as well as lobbyists. And And they pay that industry to make sure that, policies in a democracy are responsive first and foremost to oligarchs and secondarily to everyone else, which explains why in the United States over the course of our roughly 250 years of democracy, um, the United States was a much more equal in economic or material terms, much more equal society in its first decades than it is today. Today, we are one of the most unequal, societies in the world, two people in the United States, that's Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, have as much wealth as the entire bottom half of the United States combined. And that is a degree of concentration of wealth which is unheard of in US history. And it's a reflection of power that that kind of inequality is exploding. So. succinctly answer your question um, the United States does have oligarchs um, and so does Russia and so does Ireland
0: if you're just joining us you're listening to news talks taking stock and we're talking to Jeffrey a winters from the Northwestern University and he specializes in the study of oligarchy yeah and I think that's the the, the biggest takeaway um that that I got from uh, examining this in detail was that it's not a term that's confined to Russia, but it has become synonymous with Russia. But we can't just examine Russia without looking at what's happening in America and also the American electoral system, which has become so expensive for people to enter that one would wonder about the democratic process within that system as it currently exists. Do you have any observations on that?
1: Yes. So um, the fact high cost elections are, um, give, give an advantage and actually add leverage to oligarchs. Because um, if you want to be a contender in U.S. electoral politics, you have to be able to raise an enormous amount of money. And this means at any level, local, state, national, especially national. And so there are only two ways really to do that. Um, one is to crowdsource an enormous amount of money. And that is incredibly hard to do. In fact, only Bernie Sanders um, showed an ability to raise money on a large scale without turning to um, millionaires and billionaires, as he called them.
0: Can I just pick you up? Can I ask you something about Bernie Sanders? Because Uh this has a lot to do with right wing conservative populists. Where is the left in this debate or where is the the presence of the left?
1: Well, Bernie Sanders is uh, arguably, at least in the US context, very much uh, on the left. Right. Um, And he's actually a product of uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement, which you may remember uh, some years ago, uh, where.
0: Yes, uh, but sorry, sorry, Jeffrey, he's a product of them. They're not a product of him. Are there is there any room for left leading leaders?
1: Ah, good, good question. Um, It's at least in the United States, um, the kind of organizing that would have to be done at a grassroots level focused on um, material issues is largely absent. Mm. The United States is deeply into identitarian politics. It's very much into um, a whole range of categories which are not about wealth inequality. And so, uh, and and especially with the collapse of unions, um, those factors have led to an explosion in uh, oligarchic power um, in the United States. And, And I'll just note one other thing about the change around this subject. Uh, In the last uh, election of 2020, all the major candidates used the word oligarchs with reference to wealthy, powerful people in the United States. So the word is in play. The concept is in play in places like the United States uh, now.
0: I'm just trying to understand one thing in particular as when I when I analyze this is how do you explain the Trump phenomena where working class people are enthralled or um, convinced to follow someone who is in effect himself, an oligarch?
1: Yeah, it, it's very interesting that Trump very often standing up in front of his crowds would announce that um, only he, as an oligarch, could save uh, America from oligarchs. And his argument was that he's already rich and he doesn't need their money. Hmm. Therefore, he's insulated from them.
0: But he's also um, somewhat I- am- anti-establishment, isn't he? So he's representing their views and I suppose, mirroring their views back to them.
1: Yeah, well, he's he's somebody who has spent his whole life trying to get into the establishment, and the the only reason he's anti-establishment anti-establishment is because they wouldn't accept him. Um, so he's a kind of a uh, uh, he's a wannabe um, uh, establishment person, um, but he positions himself in terms of rhetoric, in terms of messaging, as someone who is outside the system, even though. This is a guy who, in so many ways, is deeply inside the system. What's tragic about the rise of Trump is that angry, frustrated people in the United States who are really not making any gains materially, and a lot of them are losing, Trump is all that is really in play for them. Uh, and, and that has to do with a lot of other complexities in the United States, the fact that demographic change is also underway. And so we are, we are the only country uh, in, as, a, as a sort of a, either in Europe or as a transplant country from Europe that is undergoing a transformation from being majority white to uh, minority white, That is underway in the United States right now, and and no other European or European transplant country has ever experienced that profound racial demographic transformation. And one of the questions is, can you go through that transformation without fascism? Um, And the United States is currently Uh, working its way through an answer to that question.
0: And that brings us neatly along to what's happening in the Ukraine uh, with the Russians. Can I get your take on what the role of the oligarchy in Putin's administration is at the moment?
1: First, just a quick uh, note that the Soviet Union obviously had no oligarchs um, because it was impossible to have tremendous wealth concentration. They had elites. Uh, in the party, a Communist Party apparatus, uh, but they had no oligarchs. Then when the Soviet Union collapsed, very quickly, um, a group of well-positioned people were able to grab major state assets in mining and oil and gas and finance. Um, and those people quickly emerged as uh, oligarchs in the Russian context. And This predominantly happened under Yeltsin. And then ever since Putin has been in power, one of the things that Putin has tried to do is position himself as what I call a sultanistic oligarch, that is, um, the lead oligarch of Russia. And that means that uh, he wants to be the person who makes or breaks you. Um, And so being close to Putin can have uh, tremendous benefits. He has tried to tame the country's oligarchs according to his rule. And and so that's why we see, unlike a lot of other countries, oligarchs in Russia have been jailed, they've been exiled, um, and and that doesn't happen in many places around the world. Oligarchs don't usually go to jail. Um, So he's had to contend with This group of very powerful people. He needs them and they need him uh, to be able to dominate uh, the Russian political uh, structure. What's happened now is that um, with the invasion of Ukraine, these oligarchs are especially vulnerable to um, the pain of sanctions. Uh, And a very interesting thing is that many of those oligarchs moved their assets offshore into places like London, uh, into places like Cyprus, but also New York, Miami, and elsewhere in the form of property. And they moved the money into offshore secrecy jurisdictions, mainly to protect themselves from Putin, who could be a predator. So they wanted to be close to him, but they didn't want to be completely vulnerable to him. Well, now it turns out that placing their assets around the globe, which is usually an advantage for oligarchs to be able to, as it were, escape the reach of their home countries, um, has turned into a disadvantage for them because now their assets are spread all over places where if the West, Western countries and secrecy jurisdictions go along with the plan, those assets can be frozen. By the way, it's very important to note that the West is currently freezing those assets, not outright taking or confiscating them, which reflects the fact that in the West, property rights uh, are very much um, uh, in place and valued, even under conditions like this, where where they're going after um, the assets of oligarchs. And then finally, the, the net effect of this, uh, Mandy, is that, um, It is really causing frictions for Putin. The the oligarchs are paying a very high price. And if they turn against him in unison, uh, it would greatly complicate his ability to stay in power in Russia.
0: And do you get any sense that those financial sanctions from across the globe now and even the sanctions and energy from the us and and from the uk do you get any sense that they're working that there are actually people in the background who might challenge putin we
1: we've, we've seen indications that uh some of the oligarchs are speaking up think think of the oligarchs around putin as being sort of concentric circles there are those who are in very, very close with him. There may be roughly 10 or 15 of those. Um, And then there's another, and those people are very politicized um, and they're in direct contact by cell phone with Putin. There's another ring outward um, from them and then out beyond that. So there are multiple strata of oligarchs. And as you move out from the inner circle, these people actually become more and more dangerous. Um, because they're less directly personally connected to Putin, who is, by the way, the wealthiest oligarch of all, and also has a lot of his assets abroad, but for a different reason than the oligarchs were placing their assets abroad. They were placing them there to protect themselves against Putin. Putin was placing his assets abroad in case he lost power in, uh, in Russia for a- at any time. Um, so, They are some of them are speaking up, especially not the closest in ones, but those in the in the circles more outward Um, and and they're worried about where this is going. Um, And by the way, it's not just the assets themselves. It's the fact that these oligarchs who really view the world as their playground. Russian oligarchs have really enjoyed in the last 20 years running around the world, um, being in posh locations, buying up properties in, in, in you know, exciting cities. Um, they've enjoyed not being just stuck at home. Uh, and now the world is a much less welcoming place for them. And that just makes being an oligarch less fun.
0: It certainly does. And let's hope that it has uh, an effect uh, on what's, what's happening uh, in Ukraine. But for now, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Jeffrey, thanks so much for taking the time to, to join us today and sharing your insights with us.
1: Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure.
0: You're welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. This is Mandy Johnston. Recently, PwC published their international survey, which looked at the sentiment of CEOs all around the globe and in Ireland. And we're joined now by David McGee, who's PwC Markets and Strategies Leader, to tell us all about uh, their findings and what in particular is on the minds of Irish CEOs. Uh, David, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. David, um, now you've surveyed hundreds of CEOs from all around the world. How many were involved in this survey um, and what was the uh, overall feeling? Is there confidence out there or are they like the rest of us all, a little bit fearful?
2: So we've over 4,500 global CEOs took part and 90 Irish CEOs uh, took part, and really thanks to all of them. Um, it gave us a great insight. the The Irish COs for example, are spread across all sectors of the economy, and and large companies down to uh, to smaller um, indigenous companies. And the the survey was taken in November of last year. Ah, oh, very very different world. Absolutely. So. It was it was overwhelmingly positive, right? And particularly Irish CEOs over-indexed against the the global numbers and were extremely positive about the outlook. Now, obviously, two massive things have changed since the the survey was polled. Uh, One is inflation has become a much bigger uh, risk and a much bigger downside risk for all kinds of uh, companies and sectors of the economy who are trying to figure out how to cope with that. And then clearly the war in Ukraine um, has created a huge level of uncertainty over um, lots of supplies into the agri sector, over energy and energy pricing um, and just general instability and confidence at both the consumer and corporate level.
0: Before we get into the findings, um, I just want to get your views on the sort of global macroeconomic situation where we don't have much trade with Russia, but we're a small open economy, so we're very much affected by uh, the geopolitical situation. What's your views on how our economy will cope with what's going on at the moment? So,
2: yeah, I I wouldn't focus on the specific trade numbers with either Russia or Ukraine, because you say they're they're small in the scheme of things. It's a knock-on. It's the fact that 40% of the gas is coming from Russia and what will happen there. It's what we're already seeing kind of flowing through into energy prices globally. Um, It's not that long ago the US announced sanctions on all energy imports from Russia that will have a knock-on impact on on pricing. And the agri-sector in Ireland is a significant consumer both of materials for fertilizer and grains coming from uh, both countries. So, It's not that there is a huge amount of trade, but the impacts as they feed through into the European Union and to us and into the global economy are very significant. It's a huge shock.
0: As we're seeing with the um, recent discussions around food security and and energy security, it's that knock-on effect. Okay, so just go back to the survey for a second. Beyond the economic, say, environment that we're in, what are the key things that are on the minds of CEOs around the globe?
2: Yeah so if if you look at the kind of the headlines uh, clearly very worried about cybersecurity very continue to be very worried about uh, talent and and what that phrase, the future of work, that people keep trying to to figure out and understand. But we've seen huge amounts of movement in the labour force. That's that's a concern. Um, Climate change and climate risks are a, a very significant concern and have moved up. It's remarkable that as recently as 2016, which given we've all lost two years with the pandemic, doesn't seem that long ago, but in 2016, climate risk didn't even feature um, in our, our survey. So, and it, it's moved right up there to where half of CEOs are saying this is a very significant uh, risk for them. The other one that features highly this year is uh, health. Um, and not surprisingly, given we were polling this in November 21, most countries were still doing uh, boosters. Omicron had not appeared on the horizon, so we didn't have a new variant. Uh, but, but still, health is a, a continuing concern there.
0: On the climate change issue, um, am I right in saying that Irish CEOs were disproportionately more concerned about that than their counterparts? Uh, absolutely.
2: The so 46% of the Irish CEOs compared to 33% globally. Why, why do
0: you think that is?
2: I think um, I think we're very connected and I think we see the impact of climate. Because we're a small open economy, because we trade significantly uh, with other words, and and because the irish are very interconnected whether it's services or goods and and i think we see and recognise the impacts i mean Spoke there a moment ago about 2016 and the movement from nothing at all to 46%. And I think part of that has been driven by people have seen, we've seen flooding in Germany, we've seen supply chain disruption, we've seen migration of people as they try to move out of uh, drought uh, ridden countries. So I, I think all of those immediate and tangible risks to economic stability have started coming through directly from climate change. And I think that's what Irish CEOs are responding to.
0: Well, the survey itself showed a lot of positivity in relation to growth um, but when it came to that issue of climate change, despite it being very high on the agenda, only 22% of CEOs said that their companies had set a net zero target. So the ambition is very uh, present in the minds but the actual happening is, is different
2: yeah and i and I think this is this this is a kind of remarkable bit of the survey so even though everybody's saying this is top of mind, this yeah. is a big risk and I'm concerned like what are you actually doing about it and and if we if we break it down into two groups so so let's look at the big group so roughly eighty percent in the global survey and about seventy percent in the Irish survey have said we have not set out either a carbon neutral or a net zero target right but
0: isn't that extraordinary given it's
2: remarkable and when you scratch underneath that and say why haven't they done that Mm. you get a couple of reasons come up right one is I don't know or I would find it too difficult or too expensive to measure my emissions and I'm kind of I'm scratching my head at that one and saying yeah but even if you don't know the precise uh, level of your emissions you know what you need to do to start taking those emissions down right
0: Do do you think David sorry to uh, to interrupt you here but do you think that maybe the reason why it's top of mind for many CEOs around the world is that they're worried about the regulatory implications for them and the commitments on things like ESG that they have to do so they know they have to do it, it's top of their minds, but they're not moving at the pace that they need to.
2: No, and, and I think um, you're right. The pressure is going to come from multiple sources. Mm. It's going to come from consumers and others in their uh, supply chain. And it's also going to come from regulators and governments. Half of the people who didn't have a commitment said it was because I don't feel my emissions are all that significant. Right, And, and again, I'm kind of going every bit matters every every gram every ton of co2 that we can take out and sequester or deal with is absolutely critical here so even if your emissions are small if if i take the example of microsoft microsoft if if you if you step back and think about their business, it's not going to be a huge emitter of carbon, right? They, they use very significant power in data centers, but that that you can move that to renewable energy. So it's not a complicated industry to tackle. They've made a bold target where they want to remove all the carbon since the founding of the company, right? Wow. And and offset all of that back to the beginning. And it's it's. I think, frankly, we're going to end up in a situation where some countries and companies and individuals are probably going to have to do more to compensate for the people who aren't. But but if we we need to get everybody on. So just thinking you're a low emitter doesn't get you off the hook here.
0: You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock and we're chatting to David McGee, who's PwC Markets and Strategy Leader. OK, so you're a huge organisation in your own right in Ireland and and all around the globe. What does your company do to affect to these changes? How do you tackle climate change?
2: So first thing we have, uh, globally, we've made a net zero commitment and we've had that uh, science-backed, we 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 made it a science-backed commitment. Um, Locally here in Ireland, we've done a huge amount. And one of the things I would say about it is, it's it's been citizen led we we haven't had to do some of the stuff's been top down so all of our energy that we use is renewable um but a lot of the initiatives internally came from so in in 2018 we took all plastic all single use plastic out of all of our buildings out of all of the the drinks are in the consumers either in a, a, a recyclable can or a biodegradable cup. We've made all of the um, cutlery in the canteen, all of the disposable stuff is all biodegradable. And all of those were initiatives that individuals in our teams or on our staff said, here's something that we should do. The, the, challenge, the challenge for our business is flights. Mm. Um, And if you went back to our baseline year of 2019, so pre-pandemic, 85% of our emissions were coming from flights. And that's really, really hard to tackle. It's hard to find any positivity out of the last two years. If there was one good thing, it's that we we all recognise you don't have to be physically present to be present. Um, And that will certainly reduce it. But there's a real desire among our clients to to meet face-to-face again and we're a relationship business and it, it, it's hard to tackle that one. We will need a technological solution but in the meantime we'll keep working on offsets and keep working on just trying to reduce the volume.
0: Were there any other areas where Irish CEOs were out of sync with the global picture? Or are we fairly much aligned on things like cybersecurity and talent?
2: Generally more positive, uh, generally um, more concerned about cyber. And again, remember, this was a year where there was the very public uh, cyber incident in the HSE. Mm, yeah. So it's not surprising. And, and a huge amount of cyber risk and cyber crime goes unreported publicly. Uh, companies don't want to stand up and say I've had an incident or I've been attacked but it is a real and present danger for every company of every size. And
0: do you in PwC obviously advise a lot of companies and um, do you see that companies are becoming more aware of the cybersecurity issue and putting in place maybe proactive initiatives to deal with it? Do you, do you get a sense that companies get it a bit like climate change? Yes and
2: no. So so yes, they're getting it and, and more and more at, at board level, at executive level, at management level, people are saying, This is a real risk and I need to think about it. They're not always as proactive as they, they should be. Maybe
0: right? it is like climate change. They know they've got to do stuff or climate action, sorry, they they know they've got to do stuff, but they just haven't made the move Yeah
2: and, and what I would say is like reach out and talk to someone right talk to others in your industry talk to your industry bodies talk to professional advisors uh, go have the initial conversation because there's always things you should do and, and trying to deal with it we, we have teams who deal with it when it becomes a crisis and deal with it when you're trying to mm. deal with a particular incident um, but nobody want it, it It happens and it happens all the time but nobody wants to get caught in that situation far better off to try to do the preventative work Work, do the drills, do the patching. It's and it's all. It is all boring, mundane legwork. But it 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 it's like it's like building up any of your defences. You need to be. You need to be ready for this.
0: And much better if you're dealing with it all proactively. Absolutely. Can I focus a little bit, David, on the talent issue because I know it's something that we we've all sort of recognised over the past year. I mean, we're almost at full employment again. So. Um, What is your advice to companies who are trying to invest in their current talent and keep them?
2: It, th- th- this is this is really difficult and uh the labor market is pinched so you're right the the unemployment numbers can be down but in particular sectors um, we're seeing massive gaps um what, what so, sectors like you look across hospitality you look parts of retail but also for key skills so we we talked earlier about those cyber skills those technical skills really challenging to to find uh, people in there, and and we talked at the the top about inflation, and there is inflationary pressures in the economy, and um, they may drive wage. That uh, is demand. the risk that yeah. you start driving a spiral of uh, cost increases, and 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 I think what employers are are, are struggling with is one hold the talent that you have, right, and and try to, and it's difficult because we haven't been able to connect in the same way with their employees. You know, people. People work somewhere because they like being part of a team. They like a sense of purpose. They want to feel connected to the people they work with. And while Zoom and Teams and Google Meet has been great, it, it doesn't give you that same emotional bond. And and it just, it, it can... For for
0: either part. So the person can't get a feel for the, the culture of the company and you really don't get a proper sense of the
2: individual. Uh, absolutely. you know. And, and all of us now have stories about, you know, I'm working with someone who I interviewed and hired and they started and onboarded mm. all remotely and and that's really difficult because you're you're losing people who've lost that connection and as you're onboarding people trying to, to trying to make that kind of come back and of course not all industries are have the ability to work remotely and and even there that's become difficult because I don't want to get all philosophical but people have made all kinds of choices and decisions over the last two years about what they want out of but we we need to fix that problem if we want to get the economy back uh, firing again
0: and um, just rebuilding recovering renewing um, that was all part of your survey in November how do you see the current very volatile situation for um, businesses and the plans that they may have made last year is that all up in the air now uh,
2: what we're seeing out there with clients is they are in so far as possible trying to hold the course right so we still pe- see people being ambitious for growth we still see people continuing to hire continuing to try to expand internationally but those two clouds that we talked about inflation and the war and the knock on impacts of the war are are hanging over and, and particularly that feed through into energy pricing because that, that pushes inflation through to every business and every industry sector and, and And the knock-on from that uh, will be very challenging for companies. We don't have management in place who've ever dealt with significant inflation, right? We've had such a stable, low inflation period for a long time. Anybody in kind of positions of responsibility probably have never been in an environment of high inflation. And Just trying to to manage and cope in that and trying to adapt and, and keep your plans on track is going to be exceptionally difficult.
0: That's very interesting that an entire generation of management wouldn't have, have, have dealt with that in the past before. And certainly another new phenomenon is, I think, the importance of energy, the importance of developing renewable energy and understanding uh, the implications of energy is is certainly something we all need to to be aware of in a business sense and in a personal sense. David, there's lots more stuff in in this survey that I'm sure we could spend another hour talking about. But if people wanted to find out more about it, where should they go?
2: pwc.ie slash CEO survey will give you everything or pick up the phone to anyone you know in PwC or go to the website. We're happy to have conversations.
0: Great. Uh, That's David McGee of PwC. Thank you so much for joining us today on News Talk. you welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. This is Mandy Johnston. I'm joined now by John McHugh, who is a multimedia photojournalist and he's worked for Associated Press, The Guardian, and he was also embedded in Afghanistan, Iraq and Sudan. His images are absolutely iconic, not just because they document war, but because they often document the ordinary lives that continue when war is going on all around. John, you're very welcome to News Talk today. Thanks for joining us.
3: Nice to be here.
0: Johnna, we're watching all of the pictures and the videos from Ukraine. Um, and really what I'm trying to do today is get a sense of what it's like to be behind the lens. Um, before we get into that, can you just give us an idea of some of the places and the conflicts that you've covered over the years in your career?
3: Well, I mean, Afghanistan is the is the real bulk of the work that I did. So, uh, yes, I worked in Iraq and I covered the Arab Spring heading in and out of Bahrain a few times and I covered A couple of unpleasant conflicts in africa um but afghanistan i spent nearly 10 years covering so going out for long periods of time i mean when i look back on it now i mean it seems like madness but i would disappear for two three months at a time and my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife um i don't know how she put up with it because you know afghanistan then was well, it's still very remote, but working as a as a freelance journalist, you would head out into the wilds and it was hard to get there. And once you stayed, once you got there, you stayed there for long periods to really, you know, get into the story. And this this phrase uh, that's used being embedded, I mean, it's often used quite flippantly and it's people often refer to it quite d- d- dismissively. Um, But when I say I was embedded, I mean, I was really embedded in the war.
0: So you, you used a term there, um, It seems like madness. And that's interesting to me because most of us run away from any life threatening situations. What is it about journalists like you who want to go towards conflict situations like this?
3: Oh, Mandy, I wish I had a (laughs) really good, sensible answer to give you to that one. Um, I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. (laughs) Um, And there isn't there isn't really a straight answer. There's a lot of different reasons that people do this, and I think people's reasons can change over the years. Um, When I went out to... I mean, I wanted to be uh, a journalist from from a young age, and I wanted to be a photographer, and I sort of moved into filmmaking through being in Afghanistan and realising there were very few journalists there, and I realised that I, I had a responsibility to do more to tell the story because photography on its own, while it's incredibly impactful, I just felt it wasn't enough But I had really, I think the driver for me was I was, you know, always a a student of history and particularly military history. But the thing I could never understand about war or conflict was how do people do really horrible things to each other? And I wanted to try and understand that. And I mean, it sounds ridiculously naive now, but that really was a big driver for me. Um, But after I spent some time in Afghanistan, things changed. And I won't say I became obsessed with it, but I certainly became more... I felt very responsible for telling the story, and I felt guilty when I wasn't there because I felt I had good connections, I had better connections than other journalists, I knew the story better than other journalists, I started to learn some of the language, I understood the, the nuances of the, the complexities of the clashes between whether it was the British troops or the Americans or the Canadians and the local people. and so. I I just became I felt that it was, you know, my responsibility to tell that story. Yeah, not-
0: I've read a couple of your interviews and that's one of the things I wanted to ask you. And do you become emotionally invested in it and politically invested in it? Do you ever or do you feel that you can ever leave it behind?
3: So like most journalists, I'm working on a book um, and the working title is I went to war and it followed me home. <laughs> Okay. And that's not a, you know, a dramatic oh, I'm suffering from PTSD and I ruined my life or anything like that. It's just a simple statement of fact that it doesn't leave you. Um, and last year I watched Afghanistan implode very rapidly. Um, I had an exhibition in London at the time. It had you know opened before um, everything really started to go horribly wrong. It was supposed to hang for a month. It ended up being on show for three months. And by the time that the exhibition came down, everything had completely changed in Afghanistan. And that was, you know, a really tough time um, because I had lots of Afghan friends who were trying to get out. I had military friends who were trying to get colleagues and friends out. Um, and lots of us were looking at it going, you know, what was the point of it all? And and I spent a lot of time talking to old friends who were really struggling with that. and. Trying to sort of, you know, get through to people and saying, look, you know, you did what you did because, you you know, you did what you were told to do or ordered to do. And people far above you messed this up. But, yeah, it was as raw and visceral last year as it could possibly be. And nobody was shooting at me.
0: So that's maybe something we don't understand. These trips stay with you long after uh, you've come back and stopped taking photographs. They're psychologically embedded in your mind then
3: yeah and I wish I'd known that before I had gone I'm not saying I wouldn't have gone but um you know I often go and talk to young journalists students and it's a point that I make all the time you know you won't and you know it's like trying to talk to kids you know if they learn from listening being a parent would be easy but I do try and get that point across that you know when you throw yourself into something like this it will stay with you for a long time if not forever and you know last summer I had, you know, particularly lots of uh, military friends, not friends, some of them were friends, some of them are old contacts, Um, but they really went to work very hard to try and get their colleagues, their peers, their translators, um, Afghan soldiers that they'd worked with. And I was getting emails and calls in the middle of the night saying, you know, hey, John D., do you have a photograph of Abdullah? Do you remember the interpreter at this base? And, I'm saying, yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I, you know, I never published them because I didn't want to put them at risk, but I have all pictures. And so you're digging through stuff like that. But actually, as you look at them, you can remember it as if, you know, it was yesterday. You mentioned
0: again, they're throwing yourself into something. I'm just trying to get a sense of when a journalist like you arrives on the ground someplace. What's that experience like? Who helps you? Who looks after your logistics? Is there a big role here for the local people or are you just totally on your own?
3: Well, you just nailed it with one word there, logistics. There's an old military phrase that says amateurs talk about tactics and professionals talk about logistics. And I've always said that getting into Afghanistan and getting to the story was the easy bit. The hard bit was figuring out where you were going to stay. You know what you were going to eat, where you were going to sleep, and even if you were embedded, you still had to get to that embed. You had to figure out, you know, how you got your insurance and you know travel. I, mean, I used to fly. I flew from Germany out to um Afghanistan. I flew through um various places in the Middle East, and so it was always about logistics. And actually, I'm a fairly obsessive person, and I think the the planning and putting the effort into getting the plan together. Um, is, you know, is what makes it work so much of the time. If you turn up in a conflict zone and you don't have a plan and you don't have contacts already and you don't have a good medical or first aid kit and the knowledge to use it and you don't have, you know, either body armour if there's going to be a lot of fighting or sort of, you know, local clothes that you can reduce your profile and attention, things are going to be very difficult for you. And sadly, over the years, you know, lots of us saw people turn up in war zones who were very much out of their depth and you know it usually went fairly badly for them and it quite often happened fairly quickly.
0: And often the images that that you have from these conflict areas um, are of quite ordinary things not just for the people and the victims but also of the soldiers I'm thinking of their clothes, their boots, soldiers skipping, laughing, eating, all these things that we tend to extract from our minds to sort of depersonalise the whole thing but soldiers are suffering and, and trying to get through the war too was that an important balancing um out uh, thing for you to do
3: yeah absolutely um you know when i went to afghanistan in what's like 2006 2007 yeah 2006 when the british troops deployed and so i'm based in london um and i i'm You know, there was over here at the time, the Defence Secretary was talking about how he hoped that the um, British military would be able to conduct a mission without firing a shot. And that was nonsense to anyone who was looking at the situation that was, you know, at best naivety, or at worst, a total and utter lie and deception of the British people and the rest of the world. So in Afghanistan, what I wanted to try and show was the experience of the soldiers, because most people weren't seeing that. Mm. There were very, very few journalists out there. Um, And so, you know, yes, there was plenty of fighting to show, but actually trying to show people get through their lives. And, you know, when I worked in Afghanistan outside of the embed system, and when I travelled around... You know, I spent a lot of time trying to show people's ordinary lives to get that point across. You know, people still have to live, you know, through a conflict. People still have to, you know, feed their kids and, uh, you know, get their animals out into the field. and, and, And that life goes on, however bizarre it is. it still has to continue as we're seeing today in, in ukraine
0: if you're just tuning in you're listening to news talks taking stock and we're chatting to john McHugh, a multimedia journalist about reporting from the front lines of war john can you share with us the story of medina Sadi, the young skateboarder from kabul
3: so um there was a charity it still exists actually um called skateistan and they um it had been set up by one very pig headed determined <laughs> fella, um, who I met and got on very well with for whatever reason. And um he had basically discovered he had he had arrived in in Kabul uh, chasing true love for somebody who had broken up with him and um anyway he that didn't work out. But he had brought his skateboards and so he set up this charity skater stand and he basically taught kids how to skate and somehow or other it fell through the restrictions. So girls weren't allowed to ride bikes and girls weren't allowed to do lots of things but somehow or other the mullahs didn't have their eye on skateboarding and so this charity had created um uh, an environment where education was provided um within the skate park but kids could come in and also learn to skate and it was very freeing um and I think the incident you're talking about is when I was up on a place called Bibi Maru Hill which is um a a hill in the middle of Kabul Kabul overlooks the city yeah and and um, up there, there's um, I mean, it had been used during the Civil War, um, but had been used by the Soviets, and so there's a there's this, a swimming pool that was built up there, an Olympic uh, standard, um, swimming pool, built by the Soviets, and then after they left, um, there was lots of fighting in the air. so there's loads of um, unexploded ordnance or bombs in the soil, and they would come up through the soil when it rained um but kids would people would go up to picnic up there so anyway they, they um i'm not really sure if it was the mayor or whoever it was but somebody had decided that they needed to put some paving up there to try and make it safer and less chance of people being hurt and of course the skateboarders discovered that they could go and skate on this really smooth surface because cobble didn't have a lot of uh, smooth surfaces or roads so the kids um were up there one day and i was with them they were skating And I remember grabbing a couple of pictures just as she uh, sort of whizzed past me. And it was only afterwards when I looked at it that I realised that the Olympic swimming pool was in the background. And the Olympic swimming pool, after the Soviets left, was used by the Taliban for executions. They would take prisoners up to the top of the diving board and throw them into a waterless uh, pool um, uh, as a fairly brutal form of execution. And so um, just as you whizz by um, on the skateboard, uh, this was in the background. and You know, it's just
0: an amazing uh, juxtaposition, but also a demonstration of the things you're trying to capture, which is that people are seeking joy in an ordinary life in the middle of all these these conflicts. I just wanted to ask you about and this might seem like a very simple question, but Is it frightening when you're there or does your job just take over and you become desensitised to what's happening?
3: (laughs) No, it's definitely frightening. Anytime somebody shoots at you, it's frightening. And anybody who tells you it isn't is either fooling themselves or trying to fool you. Um, The fear is always... I mean, you know, I I got shot once. I nearly got shot several times. I got shot at any number of times. Um, And so... You know, even before I'd been shot, I'd seen lots of other people get shot or get hit with shrapnel or whatever. And, you know, it was fairly clear from uh, from their vocalisations that it was a pretty bad experience. Um, and when it happened to me, it was pretty bad. Um, and so going back after that, you know, you have that extra sort of knowledge of just how bad it can be if you get hit again. But even without being shot, it is, you know, it's scary. And and actually, I have to say, you know, um, I covered a conflict for a few days in South Kordofan, which is in uh, a region in Sudan that I managed to sneak into in 2011. And I was only there for a few days. And that was utterly terrifying because uh, the government in Khartoum uh, were sending down cargo planes and they were basically rolling bombs out of the back onto villages um, to try and, you know, bomb them into submission, break their will to fight and that fear of aerial bombardment that knowledge that you know it could come absolutely out of nowhere um was really tough and you know in afghanistan you drove around you know there was always the risk of ieds and everything else um but that fear you know it it can you know can come from different things but it is there but the thing is you just have to say either i can compartmentalize this i can put it to one side and get on with my job which is what makes it work, or if you can't, then really you need to go home, because if you can't function, you you know, your job is to be there as a journalist and to bear witness, and if you can't do that, you're just a tourist. So really, if you can't put it to one side, then you have to, you know, you shouldn't be there. And I remember covering, um, actually in the same trip in, in uh, South Kordofan, and I remember meeting a, a doctor, and he was dealing with horrific injuries. It was mostly kids, because when the planes came over, people would jump into foxholes that they dug around the villages. But when they started dropping bombs, the kids would be terrified, and they would jump up and run. And he was dealing primarily with blast amputations, where literally their limbs had been torn off their body from, from a blast wave. And it was horrific stuff. And I remember filming with him in the hospital, and a, you know, my I had come away my daughter, my first daughter, was going to be one in a few days. I didn't think I was going to get back for her birthday. It was all really getting on top of me. And I remember having to sort of pull myself together and say, either you do this properly or go home. Mm.
0: So unfortunately or tragically, we're seeing all of these horrific things being repeated now in the Ukraine. Does looking at the war in Ukraine make you angry?
3: Very much so. Um, I think it is... It's heartbreaking. Um, it's, I, I, um, yeah, it's very hard to to put into words because I look at it and I think, you know, how pointless it is and how frustrating that this is happening again. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at um, footage coming out of um, Donbass um and back in 2014 um after i stopped working in, in afghanistan i set up a small news agency looking at verification of uh, eyewitness media and so i spent a lot of time not on the front line but actually looking and verifying footage um which you know lots of young journalists are doing today and you know can be as Traumatic and as difficult as actually being out there, um, and certainly can you know can lead to all sorts of mental problems afterwards. Um, but to see it playing out again is um yeah it's heartbreaking.
0: There's been a a lot of propaganda influence from all sides in this war, and um you mentioned the issue of verification, which I know is a big issue in reporting. Um, just with the advent of social media and how much it's playing out in real time. Do you think that still photography can still play a really important role in documenting war and conflict situations?
3: Yeah, I absolutely do. I think that the power of the still image has not been surpassed, and I'm not sure it will be. the danger is and it, look it was always a danger the misrepresentation people can take a picture out of context and make it say any number of things um that suit their argument and that's before you get into you know photoshopping or um anything else you know propaganda has always existed and people have always lied to try and put their point across um or to make their argument the the difficulty now is with social media and with the digitization of media how quickly it can spread um, and how it can reinforce you know what people already believe
0: you're a father now as you mentioned and someone with visceral experience of these conflict situations so you're looking at these war zones with a completely different perspective i would think to to what you started out with would you ever contemplate going back in
3: i uh, yeah i did have a phone call from somebody on uh, the day after the war started in ukraine and asked me if i would go out and I said no, um, and, you know, part of it is because I've told my wife and kids that I won't do it anymore, but part of it is because I've told myself mm. that I won't do it anymore. Um, you know, there's this sort of... Uh, there's quite... A, um, uh, yeah, people talk about war junkies. I, you hear very journalists, various journalists talking about this idea of a war junkie, somebody who keeps going back and back and back. And I don't really like that term because it you know undermines the the work and commitment that lots of people do um but i think for me i i spent so much time in afghanistan i got so committed to it um that it's that you know that that is that was the 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 big war that i covered and to go to to go rushing off to ukraine or anywhere else i feel you know i'd i'd want to spend a long period of time covering it rather than you know run out for a few weeks and then dash off to something else but, you know, thankfully, there are other people who are out there doing an absolutely tremendous job. And, um, you know, my biggest problem right now is trying to um, moderate the amount of time I spend engrossed in, in, in watching it.
0: We really do appreciate the time that you've spent with us today and giving us those fascinating insights, John. Uh, but for now, we will leave it there. That's John McHugh, a multimedia photojournalist. John, thank you very much.
3: Thank you very much, Mandy. Good luck.
0: Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. I hope that you found today's topics interesting and informative. We love to hear from you as well. So if you have any ideas about what you'd like to hear us discuss on the show, please send any suggestions to at newstalk.com. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, you can hear each week's show at a podcast first, available on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. My thanks to today's guests for taking the time to join us and to producer Simon Keane with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof, and then it's Gavin Riley with On the Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Thanks for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.